Good morning. I'm Linda Keller. If you can't read my name tag, it's because I forgot it was Amnesty Sunday. <clears throat> but I did sit with someone who's new to our church today, and I want you all to meet her later. Her name is Jamie. So, <laughs> and she doesn't have a name tag either. So today, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 30. And you can find that in the Pew Bible on page 810. I'll give you just a moment to look it up or in your own personal Bible, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 30. <clears throat> Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees' judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into the hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, thanks, Amy and Linda and Jamie. Thanks. <laughs> hey, uh, Amy's tears remind us that we're not talking academically uh, in this series on gender and sexuality. So I just want to ask you to bow your head with me and close your eyes for a moment, and we'll just pray. Whatever's still stirring in your heart, would you just bring to him and let me pray over you? Father, we need you. You knew that, so you sent your son. And you promised that we wouldn't be alone, so you sent your spirit to come and dwell with your people. So Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would speak, that you would help, that you would change us, that you would comfort us, you would correct us, help us see Jesus clearly, help us love the Father more. How would you push back darkness in our hearts, the confusion and pain caused by shame and guilt, but also things that have been done to us. We ask just for your help over those things, and would you come and speak a healing word, a redemptive word, a correcting word, a hopeful word to us. So, so we bring our hearts to you and ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been doing this series on gender and sexuality, and 
We're trying to essentially ask, how does the Bible speak to our modern world when it comes to things that all of us face on a regular basis? And again, it's not just a topic, it's our own stories, it's our own desires, it's our own questions, it's a thing we wonder about. If I feel this way, what does that mean about my relationship with God? If I feel this way, what does it mean about my relationship with other people? How do I think about those around me and what they're feeling and what they're believing and dealing with and how do I engage in those things and so we've acknowledged a couple of times the limitations of a four-week sermon so we can't get into some of the details and even a class that we're going to offer afterwards and a, a reading guide that's super helpful and resources on the back and a shelf of books back there and online resources that are now up to date on this thing all that still won't be enough to deal with the specific questions maybe that you have and so we just said maybe the best thing for us to do then is to zoom out and try to be grounded in something bigger than ourselves into a larger story. And so we've talked about the story of God and trying to find our understanding of gender and sexuality in that story. When you read the Bible, what you see is that there's a creator. There's a God who designed us. That's where we, that's where we started. In the next chapter in Genesis, you see that everything broke and fell apart. We, we got disillusioned and there was lots of distortions and sin entered the world in a way that caused a ton of pain. That's where we were last week in Genesis chapter 3. And then from Genesis 4 uh, all the way to Revelation 19, what you see is the outworking of that fall and God's promise of redemption being fulfilled in Jesus. So you see the pain of all of our sin and brokenness, and you see tied to that throughout the Bible the promise that God's going to come and do something about it. So, so redemption is the next part of the story of God. It's the, the need for it and how God provides it in Jesus is what the story shows us. And then it ends back in a garden with full restoration where our hope and our hearts are finally healed and set on God. That, that's the story of the Bible. And we've said we need to find our individual stories inside that larger story, both to give us hope, but also because that story in so many ways isn't just like a generic story. It's a story that's gendered. It's a story about relationships. It's a story that actually is about sexuality. We see in creation God designed man and woman as sexual beings in a, in a gender binary that actually had us in a space where we we're reflecting the image and glory of God. So part of what was marred and broken in Genesis chapter 3 is that image, that understanding, the flourishing of that. What we see when we come to the end of the book of Revelation is there's a, a wedding. This whole thing has been about God pointing to his relationship with us and his love for us and so the romantic the the pain the the stuff the longings the things inside of our hearts even our very own bodies are meant to have meaning and purpose around the personal work of Jesus as the groom that welcomes his people as a bride that's the way the story ends so it's a it's a sexual story you might say it's a story of God's love for his people and so what's on the line is not just a political agenda it's not something simple. It's something that actually is really profound at the core of even the universe, we would say. So, so we're trying to root ourselves in that story. And I want you just to hear every single week at the center of that story is Jesus, which means it's a hopeful story. So when you find yourself in spaces where you're not sure what to do and you feel disoriented or distorted or you're, you're wondering about discernment, which we're at today, how do I actually know what's true? How do I understand what the Bible really says? Can I know what it says? If I do know what it says, do I agree with it? And if I agree with it, what does that mean for my life? Those are all three very huge questions. And I think what you think about Jesus plays a big role in how you understand even the purpose of those questions. How would you answer them? Why would you want to answer them? It has everything to do about who Jesus is. So at the center of the story is this redemption. And so today we're talking about this question of discernment. How do we know what the scriptures say. And if you're over like 45 and are growing up in church, this may seem like a ridiculous question. Like what does the Bible say about same-sex attraction, about homosexuality, about, about just being gendered beings? It's just the way that you grew up. It's the things you've been taught from the front to places like this. It just has made sense to you. But if you're under 45, well, I don't know, I'm 46. I'm putting myself kind of right in the range, right? Whatever the sweet spot is. Well, if you're under my age, uh, it's a real question that you face. Because as Charles Taylor talked about in his book, the social imaginary of our culture has changed quite a bit. How we think about authority, how we think about ourselves, how we think about happiness, individualism, all of that has shifted in radical ways in the last few decades. And so we find ourselves now asking uh, an ancient question, but with a very different context and a different 
baseline assumption about what is true and what, what might be true. Ada and I got into the show West Wing for just a little while, way after, the, after it was cool. It was like a couple of years ago. So we've been out for a while. I know it's a pretty dated reference, but there's a, a scene that I can't get out of my mind. If you're not familiar, West Wing is a story of the White House and uh, Sean, nope, uh, uh, what's the dude's name? Martin, see it? No, I don't know. Martin Sheen? Martin Sheen, thank you. I'm off to a great start with this illustration. Uh, so Martin Sheen plays President Bartlett. You can tell it's like I'm totally into it, right? No, I, had to, I had to YouTube it just to kind of refresh my memory. But uh, So Bartlett is the president. Uh, there's a scene where uh, apparently there's some sort of like political or conservative kind of um, commentary on the radio that's been kind of harassing and throwing some barbs at him. And she comes to this meeting and he walks into the room. Everyone stands up except for her, which is an interesting thing. He begins to talk and address the crowd, and then he can, obviously, he's distracted by this woman, and so he begins to address her. Uh, her name is Dr. English, because so, sometimes on your show, you talk like an expert about things like gender and the Bible, and so I just didn't want people to be confused. So they start this little banter back and forth, and then he says, hey, I really like, I really like your show. I really like how you call homosexuality an abomination. And then she says, I don't call it an abomination. The Bible does. And then he begins to quote from Leviticus 18, and she interrupts him with the rest of the reference of the verse. And that starts this chilling, biting exchange where he just goes on this very pointed exchange with her where he says, can I ask you a question? From, Leviticus, or from Exodus 21.7, I'm wondering if I can sell my daughter into slavery. She is a graduate of Georgetown. She's fluent in French. She always cleans up after herself at the table. What do you think would be a good price for her? And while you think about that, he says, uh, my chief of staff can insist on working on the Sabbath. So the scripture says in Exodus 35 two that we should stone him. Now, am I morally obligated to do that myself or can I wait for police to do that? And he says, and this is important now, it's a, and where we live, he says in Leviticus 11.7, it talks about not touching the dead skin of pigs. And so, and he calls in the Washington Redskins. It's, so, it's such a dated reference. He says, in this space, when they take the field, if they wear gloves, is that okay for them to actually touch the football? And he says, and as you're thinking about that, can I ask you, does the whole town have to gather to stone my brother John, who's a farmer, and mixes seed together? Or can we have a private burning of my mother for wearing mixed fabrics? Or does that need to be a public thing? Chilling. And so you're there, and like if you're watching the show, you're going like, oh. You're intended to say, how would I answer those questions? And in that space, he then addresses her a little more pointed than that even. And basically instructs her, hey, in this room, I have respect. Would you please stand? She stands up, and the look on her face, obviously, is one of defeat and embarrassment. It ends, actually, with Rob Lowe's character coming and saying, I'll take that crab puff off your plate, and takes that and then walks out of the room. That's the way the scene closes. Okay, if you are under 45, you may not have watched that show, but that idea and that set of questions you are very familiar with. Why would you believe in a God who says something about homosexuality and shellfish or wearing mixed fabrics in the same context. And you eat shrimp and you wear spandex, so why do you say homosexuality is wrong? This is a question that gets thrown at us. And so essentially this morning, what I want to do is kind of answer President Bartlett's question. What do we make of those kinds of texts and what do they say to us and how we understand things about sexuality? I want to answer three questions if you're taking notes. Hey, and this is going to be fairly thick. And you're like, oh, every week is fairly thick, but this is going to be Eve Testament. Then what we experience today with same-sex monogamous committed marriage. That's a huge question. And then third, I want to just explore why does things like homosexuality show up in lists like crops and blended fabrics and adultery as well and things of mercy and dealing with the poor. And why in the New Testament is it named alongside of things like envy and slander and covetousness? What do we make of the fact that this is listed among lots of things? And to answer that, I want to start with the words of Jesus, which is why we're in Matthew chapter 5. 
Because the question is, how do we make sense of the Old Testament? And Jesus tells us how to make sense of it. And he starts with explaining to us that he is the main point of the Old Testament. So whatever it is that we're answering about shellfish and crops and pigskins, we're asking, what does this tell me about Jesus? What does it tell me about why God had to send his son? What does it tell me about God being a faithful covenant-keeping God who comes to his people? So, so in Matthew chapter 5, it's on page 810 if you're in the Pew Bible. And I would love for you to pull out a Bible. If you're watching at home, go ahead and grab a Bible. We're going to be in a couple of places. I think it would serve you to actually see the words on the page. But So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. We spent a lot of time here maybe even like 18 or 16 months ago. But Jesus says something really important to answer President Bartlett's question. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So Bartlett's question kind of presupposes these are ancient, kind of absurd, fairly silly things we wouldn't actually want to do. There's thrown into our imagination a distortion about the word of God being even dangerous or unloving or Something, something brutal about it that we should actually distance ourselves from. So the lie from the serpent is kind of in the spaces of our imagination as we hear God's word. So Jesus comes and says, hey, hey, when you think about all of that, and he's talking about all of it, the law and the prophets, I didn't come to set it aside and make it null and void and get over it. I came actually, do you see that too? The Hebrew text will pass away from law until all of it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. That last verse is really important. And what he's going to do in the next six paragraphs is basically take that and say, not only did I not come to discard it, I came to fulfill it, and I came to deepen it. It has to move from an outside righteousness that's embodied by the Pharisees and the scribes and move down into your heart. So he takes six snapshots. We just read two of them about anger and lust. And he says, hey, you've heard it say don't kill anybody. Of course. But I'm telling you it's deeper than that. The law of God, the heart of God goes deeper than that. What I came to fulfill is deeper than that. It goes down to you calling somebody a fool and hating your brother. You've heard it said in the law, don't, don't commit adultery. Of course, gosh, of course. I don't know anybody thinks that's a great idea unless you're faced with that temptation and you're trying to justify it. But those around you would say, dude, this is a bad situation. So of course you've heard that. But I'm telling you that if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in a sense. The same kind of guilt, it goes down deep into your heart. Not just your outward body expressions, but even inside of you your thoughts and your feelings those things I actually came to redeem and fulfill as well so Jesus just says hey far from setting it aside I came to actually fulfill it and so then we should ask like how does he do that what does that actually mean what do we think about that so let's turn to these passages that are kind of relevant to our topic we're going to go to the Old Testament to Leviticus chapter 18 it's on page 96 if you're in that pew bible I'll give you a second to turn there. It's the third book of the Bible if you're trying to find your bearings there. Leviticus chapter 18. And, and while you turn there, let me just say a couple things. There, there's something about seeing Jesus as the centerpiece of the Scriptures that becomes not just a helpful interpretive key, it's the authoritative way to read the Bible. So, so Jesus will do this in Matthew 19. He will quote Genesis to talk about divorce, and then he deepens it to make it even about justice and not setting a woman aside in a culture that saw women as property. Jesus takes the law, he quotes it to reestablish it, and then he deepens it in Matthew 19. In Luke 24, he's with his disciples, and he just says on the road to Emmaus, hey, all of this, the whole thing is, is about me. So you could say all of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. All the New Testament is explaining Jesus. That simple sentence might be a helpful way to understand it. So we come to a passage in Leviticus, which is one of a couple of passages that explicitly name homosexuality, same-sex sex behavior. In those spaces, we have questions about how do we apply this. And the reason why I had you in the reading guide to read Leviticus 18 and 19 is I wanted you to understand President Bartlett's question. 
If you were to walk through those texts, do you see uh, pro- prohibitions to uncover someone's nakedness, which is a, a euphemism? You see prohibitions to adultery, to, to same-sex sex explicitly in verse 22 of chapter 18, where it just says that you shall not lie with a male as with a woman because it's an abomination. That's the passage that's quoted in that little scene in West Wing. But you also see passages in these two chapters about mercy to the poor and about not stealing and about how to actually deal with like sacrifice and prohibitions against bestiality and against witchcraft. But you also see a call to love and sacrifice for the poor by not gleaning your crops all the way to the end to leave some there in the field. So if you were to walk through that, you would just see lots of different things together. And the question is, how does Jesus fulfill that? Even the fact that there's different kinds of punishments named throughout the Old Testament, there's some indication that the laws are not all to be dealt with the same. There's some kind of diversity in them. But let me zoom you out just for a second. When you read the Bible, I think it's helpful to keep five things in mind. We'll talk about this a little more in a couple weeks when we talk about women and leadership in the church. Kind of what does it mean to actually be in a space together with men and women leading together. Uh, I'll put it on a diagram for you. It'll make a little more sense there. But let me just name these now. Five things to keep in mind. One is God's design. What did God establish? What did he create? What's the idea? Secondly is what does the story show us? As you read the Bible, what do you see kind of playing out? What are the examples that you see? And there's our affirming scholars and lots of scholars actually that would pit against the idea principles that we see kind of commands and then examples. And the question is which one interprets which one? And by asking the question of God's larger design and what we see in the story, and then next, what are the specific commands to hold those together, keep us from saying this verse trumps that verse? We're asking, how do I hold them together? So what's God's design? What do I see in the story? What are the specific commands? Where is their failure would be the fourth one. Where do we see brokenness, our own brokenness to follow it and the brokenness of people living into the text? Where is their brokenness? It doesn't cancel out the command as if we didn't follow through with things like justice and mercy. Then you have no uh, bearing to say something about sexual sin for those in, in your own life or your own heart. If you're inconsistent, you lose authority. It pushes against that. Actually, failure then is an invitation just to repentance, to, to own where you've been, to ask for, for help. And then the fifth thing is where this whole thing is going. That's super jumbled. Number one, design. Number two, the larger story. Number three, the specific commands. Number four, acknowledging failure and brokenness. So number five, we can focus on what is the point? What is the telos? What is the end of all of that? If you can hold those things together, it helps you now read the Old Testament and ask, what is the design? How does this fit in the larger story? What are the actual commands and should I wrestle with them as relevant for today? What do I do with my breaking of these commands? And what would the point of all these things be in the first place? So when Jesus says he came to fulfill the law, he's fulfilling these passages. We see one in Leviticus 18 and one in Leviticus 20, a prohibition for same-sex sex behavior. It's really clear there. And scholars don't debate the clarity of these two verses. It's Leviticus 20, 13, if you're taking notes, and Leviticus 18, verse 22. What they debate is its relevance. Like, well, why the deal with like long hair or blended fabrics and mixed crops? Well, why would you say those are set aside and, and not these? So this is where thinking about Jesus is really important. When Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, he came to step into our world to do a number of things, to, to do what we couldn't do. He lived the perfect life, so he's the only one ever to perfectly keep the law. And then he died in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice, which all the sacrifices of the Old Testament were foreshadowing to. And there's tons of laws in the Old Testament about like cleanliness, the things that we do in our bodies, things that just happen to us naturally that make us unclean. And Jesus came and declares over people as he touches them, you can be clean. So he dies in our place. He declares a kind of cleanliness. He perfectly fulfills and holds on to the law. And then he says, all of this is pointing to me. Scholars will break down the law in different ways and not to dissect it or fragment it, but just to think about different kinds of laws. Like there's civil laws that would govern how the state was to kind of function. 
There's ceremonial laws, cleanliness laws. There's, there's sacrificial laws. What do you do with these different animals and different grain sacrifices? And there are moral laws. Okay, when Jesus came to say, I came to fulfill all of this, we then ask, how does he fulfill all of those? And because those laws are different in how they function, you would expect his fulfillment of them to also be a little different. To the spaces of cleanliness, he came to declare you able to be clean by faith in him as he touches you. No longer on the outside, but welcomed in. The sacrificial laws are fulfilled in him being your sacrifice. Hebrews says now there's a a sacrifice once and for all. Therefore, we don't need another sacrifice because Jesus fulfilled all of it. Of the civil laws, we see that Jesus didn't come just to establish a, a state, a physical geopolitical situation. The people of God are spread across the globe. So he actually now deals with the the kingdom of God in a moral way without the punishments that we see in the civil laws. And the moral laws, of course, are showing us the heart of God, what it looks like to actually follow him. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 and 25, that the Old Testament law was a tutor to help us understand our need for Christ. It pointed to the need that we had as one who actually would come and die in our place to fulfill the law and bear the penalty for all of our sin and brokenness. There's an article on the online resources from Tim Keller, just several pages kind of unpacking this in a more substantial way. But let me just read part of what he says here. He says, speaking of the New Testament, the New Testament makes it clear in places like Romans 13.8 that the apostles understood the Old Testament moral law to still be binding on us. In short, the coming of Christ changed how we worship but not how we live. The moral law is an outline of God's own character, his integrity, his love, and his faithfulness. So all the Old Testament says about loving our neighbor and caring for the poor, generosity with our possessions, social relationships, and commitment to our family is still in force. The New Testament continues to forbid killing or committing adultery, and all the sex ethics of the Old Testament are restated throughout the New Testament. If the New Testament has reaffirmed a commandment, then it is still in force for us today, he says. Last paragraph. Further, the New Testament explains another charge between the Testaments. Sins continue to be sins, but the penalties change. In the Old Testament, things like adultery or incest were punishable by civil sanctions like execution. This is Bartlett's question. Do I have to kill my mom for what she has done? Do I have to stone this dude on the Sabbath? This is because at the time of God's people, when they existed in a form of a nation state, so all the sins had civil penalties. He goes on then to say, but Jesus came and died in our place, and now the penalty for all of our sins have been borne upon him. And so rather than execution, it's exhortation is how we read those passages. I found that super helpful. So when you think about the different kinds of laws in the Old Testament, Jesus coming to fulfill them, the question we have in this text though is, okay, is homosexuality like shellfish or like adultery? That's still the question. We haven't really answered the question yet, right? All of that, there's different kinds of laws, is ceremonial and moral and civil and sacrificial. So your question is, where do I locate this? So to that space, we go back into the New Testament and we read Jesus' words. We see how we talked about sexual immorality. We see the teaching of New Testament writers like in Acts chapter 10 that define cleanliness and says, okay, all the food stuff is set aside in Acts 10. But in Acts 15, there's a real question of what of the Old Testament do we still follow? It's the question that we're wrestling with today. And in that space, the Jerusalem Council declares just a handful of things, and one of them is sexual immorality. Of all the Old Testament law, you've got to follow these things about sexual immorality. They're part of the heart of God in Acts 15. Both of those are in your reading guide from this week. Maybe you wonder, like, why are these here? They're examples of how the church understood the Old Testament to still be applied to its life. And then where you see passages that are repeated, specific commands of the Old Testament that are explicitly repeated, then, then we know these are for us today. So, so Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Timothy 1, all of these deal with and name same-sex sex behavior as outside the bounds, not just of God's strict, stingent, going to kill you if you do this law, but his design for flourishing. Remember, we're asking about the design. We're asking about the goodness of God. We're asking about where does this whole thing 
end and lead. So when you see a passage quoted in the rest of the Bible, like you see in Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6 or 1 Timothy 1, you get a sense that these are things that are to be followed by God's people even now. And when you see them in a list, even to Bartlett's question, rather than being absurd, I think it helps us understand that God's heart is for you to live an integrated life. Where how you worship and how you live and what you do with your body and how you treat the poor, these things are all integrated. In the New Testament, every single one of those references I named that name same-sex sex behavior, all of them talk about other things. We'll look at them in just a second, but they, but, but they will name for you specific sins of your heart, heterosexual or same-sex attracted, single or, or married, widowed, divorced, young, old. There are things that all of us deal with. Those lists there are to show us that God's design for us is an integrated heart. That's what we talked about when we were in Proverbs, that you don't just take justice and mercy and generosity and sexuality and words and kind of dissect them in test tubes. The whole idea is to weave them together as a fabric. That's what Jesus came to do, to make it possible for you to live in light of who God said you really were. You've been lied to. You Things have been distorted. His design is to remake you, to atone for all the things that we have done, that break us and the world around us, to make us clean, to provide a sacrifice, to free us then to live into what he has called us to. So far from like gotcha questions back and forth, it's helpful to say this question of burning my mother or touching the football, these kinds of distortions are, are actually getting at an explanation of the gospel that says Jesus came to do a lot of things. He didn't just come to affect whether you could play football. He came to actually set you free. And every part of their life is named in the Old Testament, which means every part of your life, Jesus came to actually fulfill, to deepen, to redeem, to rescue, and to help. So, so when it comes to applying these Old Testament passages, it's really helpful to read through the lens of Jesus. And not just helpful, it's the way you have to read it for it to make sense. When you come across this strange text in the Old Testament, you ask, how does this point me to Jesus? Because that's the whole story. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If I'm, if I'm in that space between fall and redemption, what is this command telling me about my need for God? About my inability to make myself whole and clean? About his heart for me and those around me? And how do I look to Jesus as the one who would actually fulfill and make that possible? In those spaces, uh, things like questions of shellfish become not unimportant, but they, they get reoriented around the heart of God. But if you believe God is just arbitrary in his laws and rules, which most of us do, by the way, whenever you're faced with a decision to pursue holiness or your own desires, in that moment, there's this slithering whisper in your ear that God is arbitrary. Did God really say? I mean, come on, this is like in the same section. I know he says adultery is bad, but he also talked about things you should wear. I mean, that's kind of crazy, isn't it? You should just click on that. I know you're supposed to actually treat people with dignity, but in these spaces, don't, don't you see how absurd or inconsistent you've already been living? Why not go ahead and go all the way? These are the distortions in your ear. So friends, if you wildly disagree with me, and these things are really complicated, by the way, I want to just kind of propose to you by seeing Jesus in the middle of it is the way that you make sense of these passages. What if President Bartlett was invited to see how Jesus fulfills all of our uncleanliness? He took the penalty for all of our sin. He made it possible for us to be welcomed rather than excluded. That's the way the Old Testament speaks. And part of that design is specific commands to show us the heart of God so that we live into his flourishing. That's the way the Old Testament talks. So, so when they're repeated, that's huge, that's key for us. And in spaces where we see Jesus as the fulfillment of them, that's where our hearts rest, and that gives us a ton of hope. Okay, that's the first question. Second question then, is same-sex sex in the New Testament the same thing we're dealing with in our modern era with gay marriage of two consenting adults who are committed to each other for life? And again, depending on how old you are, this question may make a ton of sense or might surprise you that we're even spending time on it. Isn't the Bible so clear about that? You would say if you're north of 45, 
But if you're south of 45, you, you might be going, well, it's not actually as clear for me. Because again, the social imaginary that we live in has moved away from God as the authority in my life who knows what's best for me to my feelings being what's best for me. My, my desires now drive and govern me. There's a resource on that page now from Carl Truman. It's a really important book that kind of unpacks like how we got to where we are. And basically says the sexual revolution didn't just come out of nowhere. It's rooted in hundreds of years of philosophy and ideas of things that we just have adopted and welcomed into our life. If as I'm talking, if you're struggling to even like hang with me, not just because of clarity, but because of agreement, if you're dismissing lots of what I say, I would really affirm that for you. There's, the book is like 400 pages, so on the online page there are a couple of uh, lectures he gave, like a couple of 45-minute talks summarizing the book to get us into the space where we would even be exploring the question of, doesn't my feelings kind of outweigh everything else around me? Unless you just dismiss that as something somebody else thinks, again, I believe that's what drives you in every moment of temptation. The places where you wrestle with what you desire, which turns into what you're entitled to, which turns into what you are owed, which turns into what you must have, that whole progression happens in a nanosecond inside your heart. And it's rooted in the idea that you were told back in the garden that you should be God. You should know the difference between good and evil. You should be the one who actually sets the boundaries for your life. Okay, so that's why we're asking the question. I'm just saying why we're asking the question. And I'm trying to address the room where we have a wide age gap. Again, some of you guys have just said, like, why are we even talking about this? It's so clear in the scriptures. Now, those of you who said, hey, it doesn't feel clear to me at all. I don't actually know what to do with these passages. I'm trying to just key that up of why we are where we are. And so decades into kind of affirming scholars, basically questioning whether or not what we see in the New Testament is the same thing that we see in Leviticus is where we find ourselves in 2023. Because here's the deal. Leviticus 18 and 20 is crystal clear. Nobody really scholarly debates the meaning of those passages. What they want to debate is whether or not they're still applicable to us, which is why we spent so much time talking about how Jesus fulfills the law and not dismisses it. That's that first category. So then the question becomes, well, is what the New Testament is dealing with in the ancient world something different than what we know of now? And the argument goes something like this. The ancient world didn't know anything about orientation. It was all action, and that's true. The scriptures always speak of same-sex sex, not of desire. It doesn't address a transgender, gender dysphoria. It just goes after the actions, which is fascinating for a couple of reasons. But one of them, it says you can struggle with desire and still be right with God. The promise of Christianity is not that people say it really crassly, like pray and become ungay or something really offensive like that. It's not the promise of Christianity that everything about you would just magically go away once you trust Jesus. Because that doesn't bear true to the rest of your life about the other things that are listed in these lists we see in the New Testament. You still struggle with envy and greed and pride. You still struggle with wanting something that's not yours. You still struggle with, with seeing somebody and desiring to consume them. Those are still struggles that you'll take all the way to the grave. You don't have to act on them, but they're things that you actually believe and feel and wonder, where does it put me in a space where I am with God? And so the questions of, does my behavior have to match my desire? And now that we have a space where you can have committed, consensual, monogamous marriage between two people of the same biological sex, doesn't that change the game? And so the argument essentially goes like this. In the New Testament, what we see is not this committed relationship. It's not, it's not two people that care about each other. It's always abusive. Uh, it's pederasty. It's an older man with a, a younger boy. It, it's prostit, prostitution in the cultic worship. It's, it's something like that. It's not this kind of committed relationship. And so the question we have is, what do we do with that? How do we actually answer some of that? Well, first, let me give you four things. First, there are words for pederasty and oppressive relationships that the New Testament authors could have used to describe those things, and they, they don't. They, they tend to describe in Romans 1, they describe a man lying with a man like a, with a woman and a woman lying with a woman like with a man. It's just a description. There's no word there. It's just a description of it. And then in 1 Corinthians 6 and in 1 Timothy 1, the words used there for same-sex sex are not words of abuse or power. Now, now there are places in the ancient world that that is how they related to each other. But you have to remember, 
in this space where the New Testament authors are writing, they have a Jewish mind, not a Greco-Roman mind. Which means when they say, in history, what we saw in Rome, what we saw with Greece was this open sexual situation where if you had power, you were a noble person, you had, you had money, you could do whatever you want with anybody that you want and actually prove your kind of clout and your privilege to have sex with men or women. It didn't matter. That's the world of the Roman and Greek environment. But what that misses is that Paul was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. His imaginary came out of the Old Testament. It would be like talking about leadership today and doing a one-to-one parallel with how the world thinks about leadership through a narcissistic lens and then seeing Jesus talk about leaders in the church and think that's what he's meaning. The culture has given a very different definition to leadership than what Jesus says of its serving, it's laying down your life. If that's a small illustration, then, then the idea that what was available to Paul in that day was only a reference to the Greco-Roman world um, falls short. Because his reference was the Jewish mindset from the Old Testament that had this consistent, beautiful design for flourishing that said there are boundaries to flourishing and same-sex sex would be outside of those bounds. Okay, let me stop for a second. What I'm talking about is fairly complicated. Even some of you guys are like, I don't even know what you're talking about. But some of you guys have read Matthew Vines, and you've watched hours of YouTube videos, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Can, can I affirm two resources for you? One is Preston Sprinkle's book, People to be Loved. He walks through all the passages in the New Testament. He handles them really well, like in a gracious, redemptive way, but in a way I think is really clear and digestible. He interacts with scholars in a way you can understand. And then Sam Alberry's small book is God Anti-Gay. Both of those are on that shelf back there. It's a really quick read to just wrap your mind around a lot of what I just said. But th- those resources will take you deeper into the arguments. For some of you guys, you'd like for me to move on and never mention this again. Some of you guys are wondering, like, am I actually being honest or am I having intellectual integrity with the way I'm quoting these resources? But, but in this space, I think some further research and dialogue would be super helpful. Again, the room is wildly split in lots of ways. If what I'm saying are things specifically you've wrestled with, let's talk. I'd love to engage with you. I'm trying to speak to a broader audience, some that have categories and some that don't. But I think that's important for you to understand. A common argument is that what's being talked about is not consensual romantic relationships between two people of the same biological sex. It's only prostitution. It's only abusive. It's only oppressive. And again, you have words for those that they could have used that they didn't use. The historic Christian understanding of these passages for thousands of years has been the specific understanding of same-sex sex behavior being prohibited. You misunderstand the lexicon that the New Testament writers are using, and you would minimize words that are used actually in the specific text. So let me just take you to one passage. I've referenced Romans chapter 1. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll spend time in 1 Timothy next week, but would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it's on page 954 or 955 in that pew Bible. I'm going to try to wrap this up really fast. Because the question is that we're dealing with, is that second question, is what the Bible talks about with same-sex sex relationships, the same thing that we have in our modern world with legalized gay marriage, is that the same idea? And as you engage with this thing scholarly, let me just kind of read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. All versions of sexual sin, different words being used in that space. Lots of words available there. Nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor rivalers, or revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Now if you're in the ESV, would you go back up to the end of verse 9? You'll see a little footnote there where it says, nor men who practice homosexuality. If you follow the footnote down at the bottom, it says here that this is two Greek words that are being translated. They're often known as the passive partner and the active partner in same-sex sex. So what happens there in this space is it's naming these two people, these two positions, a passive and an active 
partner, kind of equalizing those. Again, it doesn't sound like pederasty or it doesn't sound like abuse. It doesn't sound like cultic prostitution. All those words were available. Those are not the words that he uses. But if you've studied this from a different perspective, you know those two words are fairly unique. The first one of this passive partner speaks of like something just being soft or effeminate. It's not like, a, don't think locker room the way that word might be used, but, but think about um, someone who desires to appear and act like the opposite gender, for a man to act like a woman. That, that's what that word malakoi means. And then the second word he uses, it's the only time it shows up in the Bible and in the ancient world until Paul uses it. Uh, it's, and I'm going to botch this. It's like tomato, tomato. Can you give me a second on the Greek? But um, it's arsenikoitas is the word. He coins it. It's a brand new word that he comes up with. And so scholars go, see, you have no idea what this means. Except if you dig into it, what you see is that word is made up of two Greek words, arson and koite. And those are the words used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint in Leviticus 18 and 20. So Paul with a Jewish mindset, not thinking about what do the Romans and Greeks do with their bodies and their power structures, thinking about what God's design is, what the story of God is, how God's designed things to flourish. He takes these two words from Leviticus 18 and chapter 20 and he makes a word because the words just simply mean male and then to bed or to lie with. And he pushes those two words and creates a, a new word, or senekoitas. So you have malakoi and arsenikoitas are the two words used here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I know I'm losing all of you right here at the end, but it's important that you understand when Paul had terms he could have used to talk about romance, to talk about love, to talk about commitment, to talk about covenant, he chose words that were used in the Old Testament to speak of same-sex sex that was prohibited by God's design. Just trying to answer the question with some clarity for you, not, not with force, not with something that would like push someone away, actually in a way to invite more conversation, that when the scriptures speak of these things, it's not this idea that they didn't know what we're talking about. No, nothing is new in the story of God. You read the, you read the story, man, it's crazy. There, you haven't invented any version of sin that's not in the pages of scripture. All of it is right there. And so it's somewhat arrogant actually to say that that he's unfamiliar with what we're talking about in those spaces. Again, I, I'm speaking kind of down the middle of the road here. If you have deep thoughts or you want to talk through different scholars or different resources, you want to kind of pit some people against each other, I'd love to have a cup of coffee and dialogue with you more. But, but I'm simply trying to show you in this space, when it comes to the question that you get asked regularly, not by President Bartlett, but by yourself, by, by your family, but as you watch a movie, as you listen to a song, as you interact with coworkers, as you wrestle with what's going on in your own heart with your own desires, and you wonder, is the Bible actually speaking of committed sexual relationships or is it something else? I'm trying to show you in that space. I think it actually involves that committed relationship between two people of the same sex. Of course, it would include, include pederasty and abuse and all those things as well, but, but there's something deep about that word that actually is helpful for us. So I know I may have lost you. Maybe that's helpful. Those resources will untangle it for you just a little bit. Let me just kind of close this way. I asked that third question of why do we see these in lists? And I kind of tip my hand a little bit. It's to help us understand that God's design for us is not simply to restrain our passions and desires and behaviors. He's not after just withholding from you things that you want with laws and rules and regulations. That is the lie in Genesis 3 in the garden. Instead, what you see is a desire for flourishing and integration and a life that makes sense, that, that is rooted in the idea that you're a creature under a creator who knows what's best for you. And he takes into account your disordered desires, and he takes into your account your traumatic past, and he takes into your account all the insecurities and fears and shames and all the things that are going on in the world around you, and he speaks into those a better way. Let me just read again 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Hear the reason why he names all these things together. Why does he lump all these weird things in the Old Testament and in the New Testament? Why are all of them grouped together as well? It's so you would find yourself in the text of Scripture being promised redemption. Don't be deceived, neither sexually nor moral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Would you 
hear in that a reference back to the Ten Commandments. Kind of a summary of all the law in those spaces. The fountainhead of the law in that space. Speaking to the places where you struggle. And here Jesus' words, and not just adultery, but lust. Not just murder, but, but hatred. In those spaces deeper into our hearts, if you can engage this text as one who needs to hear the words of these texts, then the next verse becomes really good news in verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. God has a desire to humble us so we don't compete or rank with one another, to put us in a space where all of us are equally in need. All the cleanliness laws of the Old Testament just taught us that we couldn't on our own earn salvation. And part of listing these things that feel like disparate things, they feel like distant things, they feel like a a random assortment of things are there so you would find yourself in the pages of Scripture so you could hear, oh, Jesus died for me too. Whichever one of those words or groupings of those words fit you, if you find yourself in in an affair, you find yourself dealing with things that you're over your head at work where you've stolen and been dishonest and you're about to get fired, where you find your addictions kind of coping with the pain of the pandemic now out of control, where you find yourself so riddled with jealousy for those around you that you can't have healthy relationships, when you find yourself with sexual desires you don't know what to do with in a healthy way, hear the good news of the gospel that Jesus came to fulfill the law on your behalf, to die in your place, so that you could not just be washed, but you could be changed. That's the good news of the gospel and what he came to offer us in the person and work of Jesus. Hey, there's a ton still to talk about. We're going to fix all of it next week in our final sermon. (laughs) But I want you to hear an invitation in this moment, regardless of if you agree with me in my scholarship, where you find yourself with who you read, what, what YouTube kind of algorithm kicks up for you how much you've studied, how painful it is for you personally, what your story is, hear the good news that Jesus came and died in your place to make a way for you to be washed, make a way for you to be clean, to make a way for you to be welcomed into his family. He took the penalty and punishment for all of your sin and made a way for you to be forgiven and set free. That's the good news of the gospel, and Christians trust that. And every week we take communion as a symbol of that trust and faith. Communion is a a way to physically say what spiritually is true of, I'm trusting in the broken body and shed blood of Christ, this sacrifice on my behalf to make me whole and clean. The way we do it here is we tear a piece of the bread off and we dip it in the cup. Anybody who's trusting Christ is welcome to come and take communion. They'll be gluten-free here in the middle, and then all the aisles, there'll be different stations. If you're not in a space where you're trusting Christ, I can't tell you how thankful I am that you're here. I can't imagine how strange maybe some of this sounds but I hope you're hearing that God speaks to where you live God God cares about where you live and so it'd be appropriate for you not to come take communion but just to sit and pray there's prayers in the back of the bulletin that would give you some examples as well as people that would be out here by the couches who you they could pray for you and with you would you bow your head with me in a moment and we'll respond Jesus thank you for your love and mercy thank you for who you are and what you've done would you come now and meet us through the power of what you've done on the cross I pray a good word of this whole thing being about you would begin to soak into our bones regardless of where we find ourselves and you would speak. So use communion to nourish us, to remind us of what's true, to help us with our doubts and our pain and our questions. And thanks that you're not pushing anyone away in the room. You're welcoming everyone to yourself. What good news that is from a gracious God who came to us lovingly to fulfill all the commands of the Old and the New Testament. We welcome you to speak now in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, come when you're ready.